0: Hidden Horizons The Art of Hiding by J.M. three masks and flame when nan and tristan elliot rose from their beds the next morning it looked as if the small amount of sleep that had eventually come to them had been of no benefit for either twin whilst tristan checked the fastenings on the piece of wood his father had secured over the broken window the night before nan made half-hearted efforts to play with her little brother not wishing to diminish hartley's happiness due to her own misery before long they sensed that the house had a different mood. At first, they could not figure out why they were sure of this sensation, until Tristan sniffed and nailed it. Russell's cooking. It could only be their father making them a breakfast. But he only made them cook breakfast when he was in his best moods. Yet there was no denying the distressing stench of burning toast wafting up through the house and getting stronger every moment. Nan and Tristan washed, got dressed quickly and hurried downstairs with Hartley, who still seemed unaware of his mother's absence. Even though their father enjoyed cooking breakfast for everyone when the mood took him, he'd never been very good at it and it came as no surprise to either Nan or Tristan to find their kitchen looking like the mouth of a smoking volcano. Their father soon emerged from the billows of smoke, triumphantly holding two plates as if they were trophies he'd wrestled from the heart of the inferno. On these plates were the charred remains of things that might have been sausages, eggs, bacon and toast before he'd started cooking them. The eggs could never look another egg in the eye with self-respect. They were in trauma, as were the sausages, bacon and the crumbling black coasters that had once passed for bread. The twins looked from the food to their father's beaming face and his twinkling grey-green eyes. He simply had no clue that he ranked high as one of the world's all-time worst cooks. Good morning, Montrist and Hannah Manar, their father grinned. A new mood of hope had clearly taken hold of their father. He was like a weather vane in that respect. In a single night, he'd swung around from despair to cheerfulness by a new wind that no one could have forecast. Nan and Tristan soon learnt the reason behind their father's mood change as they sat down to eat the morning meal of almost pure charcoal. I received another letter this morning, he began, this time from Uncle Adrian. Just guess what it said. Neither twin wished to spoil their father's enjoyment in telling them about Uncle Adrian coming to stay, even though they'd known about it a day before him. Therefore, they both adopted curious smiles and let their father tell them the news. Hm mm, do dunno, replied Nan. Nah, go on, guess, urged their father. Adrian's taken up sumo wrestling, said Tristan, trying to join in his father's jovial spirit. Hm, that's an interesting thought, but no, guess again. Nan was too tired for this game and decided to bring it to an end. He's coming to stay. Better than that, replied her father. The twins were now genuinely taken aback. Obviously, their father's letter must have said more than Adrian's on his way. But what else did it say? I've been offered a job in Wanish-Limpley. I've decided we're all going to live in Wanish-Limpley. Tristan was so shocked he actually swallowed something that distantly resembled bacon Their father grinned at his children and waited for their response. This was typical of his impulsive behaviour, thought Nan, to suddenly decide major changes in the family's lives in an hour. Well, she was sorry to burst his bubble of contentment, but she just had to say something. But what about Mum? A cloud swept over their father's sunny face, and his brow furrowed into a frown. But at least it was not his vacant expression of melancholy. It's a good point. I've been thinking about that. Russell took off his apron and sat down on the opposite side of the table, taking a moment to ponder over his answer. When he did speak, it was rapidly and allowed for no interruptions until he'd finished. Now, we all know I've been a bit of a wanderer as far as jobs are concerned. Never held a position for a year or two at most. That certainly hasn't helped mum. It's put a lot of pressure on her to hold the family together when all she wants is a little stability. "'So, the way I see it, is if I make a go of this job "'and finally settle down to some sort of normal existence, "'I'm certain Mum would want to come and live with us in Wanish, "'and we can all be a family again, living in a lovely coastal town. "'Doesn't that sound ideal? "'In the meantime, we'll all be having too much fun. "'We'll be too preoccupied settling into our new home "'to spend much time dwelling on Mum's, er, break. "'It'll work, believe me.' "'Silence followed his speech.' Tristan was the first to break it, asking almost in an undertone. What's the uh, job, Russ? Some sort of caretaking position, I believe. The letter doesn't have the details as such. But Dad, what happens if Mum forgets us? Nan asked, unable to restrain the tone of anger in her voice at her father's impetuousness. Mum will think we're punishing her by running away and only gets her used to the idea of not having us around. And anyway, what if we don't want to go to Wanish Limpley and Uncle Adrian? Something punctured within her father, and Nan immediately regretted her outburst. The wind was changing again, and the weather vane in Russell Elliott was spinning back towards sadness in a matter of seconds. Oh, "'You're right, of course,' he said, and the sparkle in his eyes was suddenly extinguished. "'I should have talked to you two first. I'm sorry. It just seemed right.' "'That doesn't mean we won't go.' Nan pleaded, unable to hear her father's unhappiness, especially in the knowledge that it was she who had restored it. No, it was a crazy idea. The whole breakfast thing and the jolly mood. It's all pretend, you know. Inside, I'm desperate for her. Tristan glared at Nan as they both witnessed their father slipping back into the melancholy man. Well, I want to go to Wanish Limpley, stated Tristan. I've always wanted to know what it was like. We haven't been at this school for long and most of the kids I've met are too fragile to be friends with. I'll come with you, Russ. An ember of hope rekindled in their father's eyes as he looked gratefully at his eldest son. It was an ember that Nan could extinguish in one sentence, and she knew it. Russell turned towards his daughter. Nan loved her father too much to disappoint him. She'd rather deceive him into believing she wanted to go than see him unhappy again. It'll be an adventure, she said and the sun rose once more in her father's face. He hugged them both and promised they would have nothing to worry about, and then vanished back into the kitchen to cremate another round of bacon. The twins sighed and watched Hartley hammer his high chair with a piece of toast that rapidly disintegrated into a black cloud, much to the infant's delight. A sudden knock on the front door silenced even Hartley's chortles. It was not an ordinary knock. It was a prolonged knock which contained three distinct movements. A beginning which could pass quite easily as an ordinary rap, a middle section including a rapid flourish and two different rhythms and then the whole thing finished with a brisk crescendo of tapping. It could only be Norbert Drew. Russell shouted out for one of the twins to answer the front door, being too engaged in tackling the bacon that was spitting and hissing at him like an enraged cobra. "'Morning, Bert!' chirped Tristan as he swung back the door. "'Greetings, Tristan,' said the middle-aged figure, leaning on a tall wooden staff. Norbert Drew had surpassed himself in eccentricity today, being dressed as he was, in a full wetsuit, wellington boots and an ankle-length yellow Macintosh. "'Expecting bad weather?' Tristan inquired with mild interest. "'Oh, mm, yes. "'Look like rain, or so I thought,' Norbert replied. "'Both of them scanned the crisp, dry January sky, "'which had failed to deliver even the thinnest excuse for a cloud. "'Is your father there?' "'No, thank you. I won't come in. "'Hectic times. Can't stop. Just here to collect a letter.' Norbert was one of Emma Elliot's brothers and, by anyone's standards, "'was one of the most likeable members of the Drew family.' "'Uncle Norbert had very little to do with the rest of his family "'and normally remained inside his own apartment "'where his project hush-hush kept him almost constantly occupied. "'All tickety-boo with you, Russell?' "'Norbert asked as the other Elliots came out to greet him. "'They stood in the doorway, "'nodding and staring at the outfit before them, "'which even Hartley could sense was a little out of the ordinary. "'Ah, Nan Hartley. Delightful, delightful. "'You all seem to be bearing up nicely.' "'So sorry to hear about all the business with Emma. "'But uh, at least you have good news, eh? "'You becoming a caretaker and all, Russell? "'Heavy responsibility. "'You'll need to put on weight to acquire those broader shoulders.' "'The Elliot family could see that Norbert had no idea "'what being a caretaker entailed. "'He was a man who had no real concept "'of what life was like for the normal person. "'Norbert knew nothing of work, bills or salaries, "'but then he only judged a person "'on how well he got on with them and nothing else.' He made no distinctions between royalty and road sweepers, skydivers and sewage workers, bankers and tramps, because he had no idea what those titles meant. His fascination in the person behind the job was genuine, and his innocent charm appealing to almost everyone who met him. "'There's no guarantee I've got the caretaking job yet, Norbert,' Russell reminded him. "'Oh, there's no question of that,' Norbert waved a dismissive hand. "'You're the man for the task. Have you the reply? I'll give it to Adrian myself.' Russell handed him an envelope. Are you going to Wanish Simply then? Nan asked. I'm heading that way, Norbert replied. Which way? Nan grilled him. That way. Norbert wafted his hand in the vague direction behind him. I don't wish to alarm you, my friends, but something smoking in your kitchen smells a little pungent too. Russell Elliot raced back into the house to salvage some of the cinders of bacon. Norbert, tucked the letter into an inside pocket of his Macintosh, gently tapped the staff against his head as a goodbye salute and squelched his way down the driveway. Tell me to stop interfering, if you wish, he called out. But you're missing one of your windows, you know. You ought to get one of those, um, uh, glass people. Not people made out of glass, if you follow me. (laughs) That would be absurd. But you ought to get one, just someone to come and look at that window. Well, where that window should be. They're called glaziers, Bert, Tristan called back. Are they really? Who thinks up those marvellous names, I wonder? And with that, Norbert Drew disappeared up the street. Walking to school that day, after having left their father whirling heartily around on the front lawn, where the conquistadors had or had not set up their tent, Nan and Tristan thought their dad had finally lost his marbles. They did not have the heart to tell their father that his plan to win their mother back was just about the worst thing he could do. He would stop the whole move there and then for their sakes and then they would have the agonising spectacle of watching him slump back once again into a man of frustration and rejection. Neither twin wanted to spoil his positive mood of hope and they knew that their opinions mattered to him. School was just a baffling collage of faces and frowns for Tristan. He could not concentrate on anything for more than a moment and teachers kept asking questions that he never answered correctly but everyone else did. It was due to a recurring daydream he simply could not get out of his mind. The daydream was a vision of himself coming over a hill or walking out of a wood or rounding a cliff on the way to Wanish Limpley. Yet somehow there was always another hill to climb, one more forest glade to walk through and one more bay to cross and he could never catch a glimpse of his destination. I tried to look it up, Wanish Limply, in the school library today, Dad, said Nan, as she pushed her barely edible meal around her plate that evening. But I couldn't find anything about it. Even the few web pages seem to be written by a bunch of nutters, and there's some American loon who's obsessed about it, has a whole website about the place. But there doesn't seem to be any place named Wanish Limply on any maps anywhere. What's it like, Dad? Don't know. Never been there, replied her father. You've never been, exclaimed the twins together. No, always wanted to, but never found the time. That's what children do to you, you know. They munch up your time, he answered with a grin. But Russ, how do you know you'll like the place if you've never visited it? Well, as Nan said, Tristan, it'll be an adventure. The twins slumped in their seats, glancing at each other. They bowed their heads. Was it too much to expect that their father had at least visited the place to which he had intended to relocate them all? Dad, do you even know where Wanish Limpley is? Asked Nan, fearing surely knew the answer. Her father did not disappoint. No, do you? Nan intended to begin packing up her belongings as soon as her family had gone to bed, but the extraordinary circumstances of the last couple of days, combined with the lack of sleep from the previous night, meant she could not focus on any task for more than moments. Since the news of her mother's departure, time had not appeared to be constant. The conquistadors and the birds on the telephone wires might have occurred a month previously, and yet the feeling after the reading of her mother's letter still smarted like a slap received mere seconds ago. "'How can that be?' Nan whispered aloud. "'Men threaten to murder me, my family, birds spell out words of warning, and Mum trumps them both.' But the more she thought about the Spanish soldiers and the birds, the more extravagant the memories of them became." The Conquistadors were now camped in a non-existent field outside the house with ranks of troops lined up behind them and the birds on the wires were no longer mere starlings but falcons and vultures with human eyes. Nan passed judgment on her imagination and found it guilty. None of it happened, she declared in a voice that was louder than she'd intended it to be. Laying her head down on a pillow that night, Nan finally found focus on a single thought. Once again, it was not the conquistadors or their mortal threat, nor the message from the birds. It was not even the move to Wanish Limply that her mind settled on, but the same simple question. Will Mum ever come back to us? Her lips tried to mouth the question, but Nan was asleep before the last two words were ever uttered. It was as if a lightning bolt had struck Nan's eyes. The sensation blanched her vision, blinding her in a universe of nothing but white. Then it began to rain stars, a curtain of molten light pouring down before her eyes until the white scattered and finally darkness returned. It may have been a dream. She might be dreaming still. Nan had no idea except that her eyes were open. It was night still. Tristan and Hartley were snoring softly beside her, but the landing light was off the landing light was never switched off at night. A small innocuous crash drifted up from downstairs, followed by a muffled voice trying to stifle their annoyance. It came as no real surprise to Nan that her father had been unable to sleep. Russell's thoughts must have been swinging between the bleakness of the situation between him and his wife, to the thrill of his new future in Wanish Limply, and then back again. Quietly padding from the room, Nan resolved to head downstairs to talk to him, or to at least give her father company through the long night. She stepped over the creaking stair seven steps up from the hallway and suddenly stopped. Hazy stripes of reds, oranges and yellows were dancing and chasing each other over the walls of the living room, unaccompanied by the unmistakable crackle and hiss of flame feeding on its fuel. It was fortunate for Nan that as she tiptoed into the living room, the four men inside had their backs to the door. They were huddled around the broken remains of the glass jar where the Elliots had stored their spare copper coins – Two of their number carried flaming torches which looked like oversized matches, causing the metal from the men's exposed swords to reflect the fire in unearthly bands across their bearded faces. The ancient Spanish soldiers were biting down on the coins to see if they were authentic. Nan ducked out of the door before she was spotted. She felt as if her flesh was beginning to freeze. Anxiety seemed to have swelled her heart to bursting within her chest. The conquistadors were in the house. With hands that had become clumsy with shaking, Nan slowly reached for her father's hand-carved walking stick beside the door. She did not stand a hope against the soldiers. Fear alone would see to that, but Nan had to give herself a chance. Only then, as she crept back upstairs, did she hear the frantic whispers outside the bedrooms. There were strangers upstairs as well. "'Unlike the Conquistadors, these people were trying to keep as quiet as possible, "'but there was an urgency in their task which called for rasps of commands and questions. "'Why are you still here?' "'The voice sounded female. Nan could tell that even through the toneless whisper. "'We can only find two of the children,' a man answered, barely above a hush. "'Damn it,' the woman replied. "'Who's missing?' "'The girl.' "'Well, get the boys. Not a sound from them. Try to keep them sleeping.' They cannot know of the danger they're in, the woman instructed. The rest of us might have to make a fight for the girl. Why is it the Pizarro boys again? There was a snapping sound similar to sheets on a clothesline flapping in a fierce gust of wind. This is not one of the Pizarro's expeditions, Kat, replied another voice. Nan knew was familiar to her but could not place. It's no coincidence they were led here. Someone has intended harm. Someone? Someone? We're all adults, so just say it. He's intended harm. He's intended murder, a third voice spoke up. Come on, let's get on with this before we draw the intention of any imps. Remember, they have fire, said one of the men. You don't think I know that, replied the woman. I'm thinking of you. We'll go first. Nan was trapped. She could have sobbed with anguish. Two minutes ago she'd been asleep in her bed and the Elliot's world had not been perfect by any measure, but they'd been safe. Now she was trapped with bizarre Spanish mercenaries and kidnappers, terrorists, killers. She didn't even know what to call the people upstairs. How had her family's lives shattered so completely in such a short span of time? What decision or action had they taken in the past that was to deny them any future? Nan choked back a cry and decided to help her family, even at the cost of her life. In her haste, she forgot about the creaking seventh step. The noise of the groaning wood resounded around the house louder than it had ever done before, stirring up an ominous vacuum of silence. Both groups, upstairs and downstairs, were now alert to Nan's presence on the stairs. Through the doorway to the living room, Nan could see the fires shift first, casting monstrous shadows over the walls, and then, with creeping inevitability, the conquistadors slowly appeared. The flames from their torches produced dark circles of soot on the ceiling and the paint on the frame over the door was first singed and then began to blister and bubble with the heat. "'Eh, hey, senorita! You Eliot," said one of the men with mock delight. "'You have no gold! No matter! Your death is plata, money!' Nan guessed he was the soldier she had spoken with the previous afternoon. In the light of the flames, with their grins displaying their rotten teeth and the musty scent of aged sweat pervading the hallway, the Conquistadors might have been a species of demon. Brandishing her father's walking stick from the seventh step, Nan became all too aware that in the corner of her eye were several looming figures at the top of the stairs. It became clear that the strangers above her did not want to be seen by the Spanish soldiers, but that they were not retreating either. These were two separate groups with two different goals, and they were not working together. Nan had no idea whether that made her situation better or worse, and in less than a couple of seconds, she had her answer. At the very moment the Conquistadors began to swagger towards her, Nan glanced up, then threw herself to the stairs out of the path of the dark silhouette swooping out of the darkness above. The masked figure managed to land some part of its body on all four of the soldiers below, flinging them in all directions. What might have been a glowing spear of ice, followed by another shot past Nan, as first one intruder from upstairs and then the next vaulted over the banisters and began to engage the day's conquistadors in combat. Flame, blade and the curious ice-like shards sliced and whirled in a hypnotic dance. In the light of the torches, Nan could clearly see that the three figures attacking the soldiers were all wearing dark masks. But Nan had no time to examine what type of weapon the dark attackers were wielding, for the fire had now taken hold of the heavy-lined curtain and the front door was ablaze. One of the conquistadors broke free of the attack to lunge at Nan. There was a whistling sound and something darted past Nan's head, making her hair sweep over her face. The Spanish soldier groaned as something thudded into his shoulder, propelling him back against the flaming door. "'Get up here now, Nan!' a woman's voice yelled. But Nan stood transfixed by the fray. The burning hallway illuminated all the fighters, and yet their limbs and torso seemed independent of each other. It was a bizarre and beautiful spectacle." A tall, stooping figure leapt down the stairs and hauled Nan upstairs. As she was couched under the arm of the tall stranger, Nan saw that sewn into the dark mask was a slot of unique material at the level of the eyes. A maroon hue swept across the surface of the fabric. It changed to gold and then, almost instantly, turned into something closer to terracotta, as if reflecting the different emotions or thought of the wearer through colour. On the landing, the tall figure put Nan back on her feet and knelt before her, the eye slot now glowing a cool marine blue. Please, I know this is alarming, but I am here to protect you, claimed the female voice. Your father and brothers are safe, but you are in grave danger. Nan glanced into her bedroom. Tristan and Hartley had vanished. The house she had grown up in, the home where she'd lived all her life, felt like a foreign, hostile land. Nan hardly recognised the place at all. Where are they? Nan asked. Some instinct within her did not trust the tall figure. Where are my family? Safe. Please, Nan, we need to leave. There are others hunting you, and if you're found, you will be killed. Why? There's no time for this. The eye slot flashed a toxic yellowish orange. How do you know my name? The tall figure tried to grab at Nan, but was pushed away. A long, vexed sigh emanated from the mask. All right. Someone close to you told me that either you or your twin brother woke up. I was to try this. The woman behind the mask curled one of her hands into a fist and began to knock on the banisters. It was no ordinary knock. There was only one person Nan knew who possessed such an intricate and extravagant sound signature. Nan gasped with recognition. Uncle Norbert? Is Uncle Norbert here? Good. We need to but the tall figure stopped mid-sentence. The fire blazed away furiously downstairs, but beyond it was a sudden and threatening absence of human activity. The creak from the seventh step up heralded the tongues of fire from the torch first, and then the outstretched blade as the leader of the conquistadors crept slowly into view. The bedraggled white plume on his helm was singed to a point of non-existence. His expression was that of concentrated rage. Reaching into her trouser pocket, the tall figure brought out half a dozen coins and tossed them at the Spaniard. "'Gold! Oro!' she said desperately. The coins rained down upon the soldier's armour, making clinking sounds like shrapnel, but he paid no heed to them. He had but one purpose. Only their blood would satisfy him. Nan watched as through someone else's vision, while the masked woman took off the pack on her back and swung it round. Sensing a moment of vulnerability, the conquistador struck at the crouching figure in the mask. With ferocious speed, the masked woman appeared to grab at something, leaning against the wall, and an arc of scarlet sliced through the air, colliding with the Spanish metal and causing the sword to veer off harmlessly. Nan was still open-mouthed with bewilderment when she witnessed the beaten Spanish soldier hurl his blade at her head. It spanned through the air with serene grace and beauty, catching the light of the rainbow patterns in blurring trails of colour. The hilt of the sword hit Nan's skull with a substantial glancing blow, causing her head to jolt to one side, but she remained standing. For a few moments there was no hurting, as Nan's mind was too busy with its own internal chaos to be dishing out pain. It was as if the impact from the sword had jarred out of place all the mental connections in her brain, rendering her incapable of making sense of anything. There was the sound similar to loose sails flapping in a wind. Nan jerked her head towards the tall, mast figure, but a cavernous mouth of darkness was engulfing everything. But it was not a mouth. It was fabric. Nan struggled feebly against the suffocating material. Then... There came a cool rush of air, a feeling of being sucked forward. The material was gone, and Nan pitched forward onto hard floorboards. It made no sense. The Elliots had no exposed floorboards in their house, but Nan had no time to consider such things. The collision with the floorboards, and then the postponed pain of the Conquistador's blow, flung her into unconsciousness.